electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. Banks on the brink. The uninsured deposits scaring everyone. And the surprising market response, thanks to the government and other banks stepping up. And First Republic was cut in half, again, after just bleeding, bleeding, bleeding. Walking a tightrope, the Federal Reserve beginning a critical policy meeting. Former Fed Governor Kevin Warsh. The central bank needs to be a still and steady point in a turbulent world. If they're not, they find themselves doing these weekend bailouts. So what now? They now find themselves in a crisis. What should they do about it? As they sit down at the FOMC tomorrow, I think they need to call a big timeout. Plus, sports giant Fanatics scored a deal with the NHL. CEO Michael Rubin on his $31 billion valuation. It's still growing. I think we've made a lot of progress over the past 18 years, and we're just getting started at the same time. It's Tuesday, March 21st, and Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Here, please. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We're live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And here we are, guys. It's Tuesday. You want to take a look at the U.S. equity futures and after the... Those bank stocks themselves are bouncing. Dow is up 380 into the close. S&P is going to get above that 39.50 level. First Republic, the regional bank shored up in the wake of the Silicon Valley bank collapse, saw a stock drop of about 90 percent. Now it's leading something of a comeback rally across the stocks of all regional banks, thanks to two headlines. The first, word that J.P. Morgan has taken a lead role in shoring up confidence and helping First Republic evaluate its options, from raising more money to an outright sale. The Wall Street Journal reported that JPM CEO Jamie Dimon is leading discussions with other big bank CEOs about efforts to stabilize First Republic. The second headline is key for investors. FRC had an abnormally high number of uninsured deposits on its books. When Silicon Valley and Signature Banks were closed last week, regulators ensured all deposits at those institutions were safe, including those beyond the $250,000 account level. Today, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said the U.S. government is willing to take even further action to guarantee that bank deposits are safe. Let me be clear. The government's recent actions have demonstrated our resolute commitment to take the necessary steps to ensure that depositors' savings and the banking system remain safe. In remarks to the American Bankers Association, Yellen said authorities will do what's necessary to stem contagion in the banking system, and she lauded the collective moves by banks to backstop First Republic. And as you know, 11 banks, including the very largest and some regional banks, announced $30 billion in deposits into First Republic Bank last week. This support represents a vote of confidence in our banking system. We should also mention that J.P. Morgan and Jamie Dimon in particular was the one responsible for bringing all of those deposits 
from all those other banks to First Republic Bank uh, as as part of a, uh, a saving plan question or a saving plan, a rescue plan. Question, of course, is whether uh, J.P. Morgan actually would be allowed to take over First Republic if it even wanted to. Clearly, one of the things that the U.S. government's been unwilling to do so far uh, is let some of the biggest banks get even bigger. But uh, yeah. potentially, uh, maybe that's something that could be on the table. Well, Joe? That's a big difference between uh, depositing $30 billion and, like, actually buying something shore up with, right. with the $30 billion. Like, I could see, yeah, all right, I want to deposit some money with you. That's my well, And it's all FDIC-insured money. Still, yeah, and it's still my money. But to, that's all, and thirty billion, pretty good, pretty good, a lot of money. But a thirty billion dollar investment of some type, that's a totally different thing because then you're on the hook, right? You could you could definitely uh, not have that money down the road. It, did you guys think it was interesting, guys and gals, that uh, the market was up three hundred eighty-three points, and and First Republic was cut in half again after just bleeding, bleeding, bleeding for the past two weeks. But all of the other banks were up. Right? Yeah, compartment. I mean, it really yeah. is like anybody who. Still has a lot of angst about the banking sector. They focused all their angst on that one uh, particular name. It, but it, I think that's par partially because there's so many uninsured deposits. And I hate to tell yeah. you, but just from the reporting that I was doing yesterday, because I think there was there is there is anxiety, and of course I don't want to cause more anxiety. But I think there's anxiety about a flight of deposits, not of course the 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 new thirty billion dollars of deposits, but. I think there's a lot of, of customers, small businesses and others that have been asking a lot of questions about whether they should keep their uninsured deposits specifically at that bank. And I think that's what's led to some of this. By the way, there's when that $30 billion of deposits was moved there, there became a whole separate conversation. People were starting to call some of the banks that had moved to their deposits there to say, well, is that my deposit? Is my deposit now moved to First Republic? How does that work? Right. So I, I, think I, I would say the one itself thing has created some questions. Yeah. And I would say the one thing that all of this has done has made every person in America start thinking pretty closely about not only where their money is, but what kind of rate of return they're getting on it. So these funds, you know, these deposits that were supposed to be so sticky, once you have people sitting around the, di the dinner table talking about these things, makes people say, hey, could I get a better rate for return, rate of return if I were to put my money else, elsewhere? You know, it, it, it's not a lot of families that have more than $250,000 exactly. a high class. It's a high class it, I mean, But it's also businesses, small businesses, businesses that and, are looking and at some well, of these things. There was $108 billion that was moved to money market funds in the last week, and that's the fifth highest uh, week on record going all the way back to 1982. That money wasn't coming from the stock market because the stocks ended right. mostly higher last week. That money was coming from you know, small businesses that did have more than $250,000 at some of these places. It was deposits that were going there. Right. And small businesses trying to make sure that they can still have payroll that's preserved in a money market because of the last financial crisis back yeah. in 2008, the Fed actually did. That was, what, remember, the federal government stepped oh, in when they the broke the money, broke the buck on the money markets. So mm -hmm. people assume that that is covered, even if deposits aren't. Bloomberg is reporting this morning that there is this movement afoot to try and figure out if they can insure all the deposits, that this is something Treasury is now looking at. But these are long conversations that are probably taking too long. In the meantime, that money is or has been moving out of it. My, my, my understanding is that, you know, the movement of these deposits has slowed down significantly, but that's because so much of it already moved. But talking to the average American, 
and we don't always do that probably as, as much as we, should. We, we try to, but we have, a certain, we have an audience and it's corporations and businesses, small businesses, wealthy individuals. But I mean, very, very few Americans are worried about a $250,000 yeah. cap but, on, but on their deposits. Small businesses are. Small businesses and are. startups. I was going to say it's the and same people. And First Republic clients, because First yeah. Republic first clients Republic are the ones getting the super jumbo mortgages. Yeah. That was one right. of the few banks that was doing that, serving Black that, commercial that, real that, it's basically, that worth individual yeah. group. Basically the same people that benefited from the Trump tax cuts are the ones worried about the 250000 <laughs> Rich individuals and corporations. Now, that's from that's not me talking. It's sort of just that, that would be a narrative that you might read. Now to a conversation about the banking turmoil uh, generating some buzz on Twitter. U.S. officials are reportedly considering ways for the FDIC to insure deposits. Just talking about that beyond the quarter of a million dollar cap. Sounds like a lot when you say that without congressional approval. Elon Musk responded to a tweet about that report. He's got to think about where he puts his money. I'll tell you that. He commented, absolutely, it's required to stop bank runs. But investor Bill Ackman later commented on a similar post about the FDIC move. He's saying the same thing. It's about time. Ackman then tweeted along a post arguing that the Federal Reserve should pause on Wednesday because of major shocks to the system. Musk replied to that saying, the Fed needs to drop the rate, drop the rate by at least 50 basis points on Wednesday. But that's not happening. No. Next, on Squawk Pod, gearing up for the Federal Reserve's meeting, former Fed Governor Kevin Warsh on whether it's time to hike, pause, or pivot. The regime change that we need is a change in economic policy, change in regulatory policy, a change in fiscal policy, and probably most importantly is a change in monetary policy. Paying the price for our economic wake-up call right after this. Nothing's more expensive than free money, and free money causes a huge amount of complacency in markets, among banks, among regulators. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. And we're back. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. The Federal Reserve meets today and tomorrow, and it's one of the toughest calls for the central bank's rate-setting committee in years, whether to stay the course of raising interest rates to combat inflation in the face of a shocking banking crisis. Chairman Jay Powell has his detractors. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren is one vocal critic. She said he should be fired and more. Look, my views on Jay Powell are well known at this point. He has had two jobs. Uh, One is to deal with monetary policy. One is to deal with regulation. He has failed at both. 
Look, I, I, I don't think he should be chairman of the Federal Reserve. I have said it as publicly as I know how to say it. I've said it to everyone. The Fed's goal is to slow inflation, and your tool, raising interest rates, is designed to slow the economy and throw people out of work. So far, you haven't tipped the economy into recession, but you haven't brought inflation entirely under control either. Jerome Powell just took a flamethrower to the regulations, weakened them, weakened them, weakened them. I said he was a dangerous man to have in this position. Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin considered the Fed's key move today on our TV broadcast. Here's Becky. In his latest Wall Street Journal commentary, former Federal Reserve Governor Kevin Warsh is once again calling for an economic regime change. Warsh says that history will give a full accounting of the errors that were committed in economic policy. In fact, Kevin joins us this morning. He is now a distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. And, you know, Kevin, we were talking about this off camera, just the idea of the headline itself. The U.S. needs an economic regime change over a picture of Jay Powell. It sounds like it's putting you in the same camp with Elizabeth Warren, that you think <laughs> Jay Powell should step aside. That's not what you're calling for here. No, the, we, we've got a team on the field. We need the team on the field to be successful. Uh, we have one economy, one country in a time of huge stress. All I'm trying to suggest in my piece yesterday and this morning is the economic policies that have put us here have shown the economy is weaker, uh, credit is going to contract because of free money that was practiced for a decade that they doubled down on just a couple of years ago. So all these problems that you talk about every morning uh, about panics at the banks and distress and bailouts, first they remind me uncomfortably of the 2008 financial crisis. And those are a sign of bad economic policies for more than a decade. So the regime change that we need is a change in economic policy change in regulatory policy, a change in fiscal policy, and probably most importantly is a change in monetary policy that created all these disturbances that we're seeing today. And, and the change being that we should not be at zero interest rates, that that should be a thing of the past? Yeah, so nothing's more expensive than free money, and free money causes a huge amount of complacency in markets, among banks, among regulators leads to misallocations of capital from where the money should be going to the hottest, least productive, riskiest thing. We're starting to pay the price for it. I'd say, you know, they now find themselves in a crisis. What should they do about it? Uh, as they sit down at the FOMC tomorrow, I think they need to call a big timeout. A big timeout. They've been providing forward guidance in these dots now for a decade. I thought it was a bad idea a decade ago. I think it's a worse idea today. Uh, what Jay should do tomorrow would be make whatever decision he's going to make, presumably raising rates a quarter. And when these reporters ask him what should he do next, he should say, I don't know. He should say these forecasts really don't mean anything at all. There's even in normal times very little value of these short-term forecasts. I think it confuses markets. It constrains their decision making. And when you really push and ask yourself, why did the Fed make such a big mistake? keeping interest rates at zero through 2021 when the economy was booming. Why were they so slow to raise rates even a year ago? Their first move was a quarter basis point when inflation was 8% and the economy was strong. It was because they had tied their own hands through these dots and through talking too much. The central bank needs to be a still and steady point in a turbulent world. If they're not, they find themselves doing these weekend bailouts. Yeah, and, and Andrew's got a question, but just very quickly, that basically, the idea that they are tying their own hands by doing this um, 
they're not data dependent, which they say all the time they're data dependent, but they're less able to be data dependent when they have these points that are out there. I think that's right. They're constrained because none of us want to admit that we were wrong. So yeah. we say what's going to happen, markets price it, and when the facts change, we need to change. Instead, we think that somehow squanders our credibility. I think the other piece, though, that you bring up is they do keep talking about data dependence. I think there are only two problems with that, Becky the data and the dependence. Um, the problem with the data is the only place the economy was strong in the first couple of months in the, uh, this year was in the government data. The economy was not strengthening according to everything I see and touch. The economy was continuing to weaken a bit week over week, month over month, but the government data said otherwise. So the Fed flip-flopped. They came into the year saying inflation's under control, the economy's weakening. And they got a couple of monthly prints from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the Department of Commerce. And they said, oh, no, the economy's strengthening. We'll have to do more. And it was in the Senate Banking Committee when Chairman Powell said, I might have to raise at 50, 50 basis points at my next meeting. The economy's hotter. The terminal rate might well be 6%. The things broke. Stop listening to this government data. Stop relying on it and be steadier and call it the way you see it every six weeks when you meet. Andrew? Hey, Kevin, I'm trying to understand almost, uh, you know, we talked about uh, economists. Maybe the Fed should be behavioral scientists. I, I hate to play the blame game, but when you talk about or think about what's happening in the banking system right now, do you say that is the fault of the Federal Reserve? That's the fault of this money and that they should have known in terms of how they balance what they do? They should say, look, people are going to just go out the risk curve. They're going to do crazy things. It's our job to stop them. Or do you say that's on them, the people who took that risk? Um, in a word, yes. Uh, free money infects everyone. It infects regulators who get a bit complacent after a decade. Um, it affects market participants who say buy the dips every time. The Federal Reserve has continued to show that they have a lot of interest in keeping money free. We're all infected by it. We can't help it. So I blame them all, but I would say at core, when the history is written, they will see another regulatory failure by bank regulators. And that's in part, Andrew, because the artifice of Dodd-Frank regulation last 15 year, years did not work. At core, you've heard me talk about this for a decade. I've written about it for a lot longer than that. We need three pillars to make sure we have a safe and sound banking system. Market discipline, strong capital standards, and regulatory discipline. Well, we're 0 for 3, and um, we know how to fix it, but we haven't done it, do, so do we shouldn't a, be surprised that 15 years later we're back in the soup. Do you have an algorithm for, for where interest rates, do you have a Black-Scholes model? Do you have a Taylor rule? Do you have, wh what is the neutral rate? What, what should we set it at? If we're not going to, if j Powell doesn't know and has to admit it, and if the data is not great, how do, how do, where should interest rates be right now? How would you gauge what the right level is? So most of us ended up in economics, Joe, because we were first mathematicians or physicists in school. And it was good. too hard. <laughs> so right. we ended up in economics. We wish we knew always what it, where the precise interest rates were, what the right rule was. We don't know. We aspire to know. The other thing that's true is this is a dynamic economy. The right interest rate in 2023 is different than the right interest rate would have been five or 10 years ago. The supply side of the economy changes, global economy changes. So I think the best advice I can give is the advice that Paul Volcker gave me when I was 35 years old. And uh, I showed up to see him. Senator Sarbanes sent me to see him. Uh, 
Chairman Volcker was going to tell Senator Sarbanes whether to vote yes or no on my confirmation as a governor at the Fed. And so I had a question just like yours for Chairman Volcker. I brought my autograph book. I was so excited. And I said to him, so how do we do this? And he said, Kevin, let me give you two bits of advice. The first is you have to get interest rates about right, but we never know what that means. So just kind of be in the zone. And by the way, zero was never in the zone. And the second thing he said is more important than the first. When you do that, make sure you look like you know what you're doing. <laughs> Fake it till you make it? Well, it means that there's some, there's some amount of... amount of confidence in the system, which is what we're seeing in banking rates. Show right. confidence. Show confidence. That doesn't mean, say, you know exactly where rates are going to be at the end of every year. You know where the economy is going to be. But preserve your optionality so you can make prudent decisions. You think they and should... And my own judgment is we need positive Powell, real interest rates and should have had them for a decade. Should Jay Powell have spoken out against some of the fiscal excesses of the last two years? Or is it an independent body and, and that Can't Judy Shelton has, 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 and you like her, you, I, I don't know if you agree with her on things, but she said that just to sit back, staying at zero and enabling all of this was part and parcel to being like a partner with, with profligate fiscal spending. Well, the horses left the barn on that one too. Um, the Fed encouraged fiscal expenditures. Uh, repeatedly when asked in congressional hearings during not only the dark days of the crisis, but long after we had vaccines, during 2021 when the economy was strengthening. So it's rich to say now that they should say nothing when they were so aggressive in supporting it. But more important, Joe, we talk on this show a lot about interest rates. I write op-eds about interest rates. But let's not forget quantitative easing is the buying of the treasuries that fund this fiscal expenditure. And so whether they like it or not, the line has been crossed between fiscal policy and monetary policy. And for one, I don't believe that we would have had this fiscal explosion under Democrats or Republicans if the Fed hadn't been financing it. Let me ask you, yesterday we had Scott Reckler here. He's the CEO of RxR Realty, uh, Realty and he was saying basically that we need help for commercial real estate, that they want time to extend loans that are going to be coming to maturity in the next three years, that there's not enough liquidity to do it. They need to extend all of those loans and that unless there's help or pushing from the federal government, they're not going to be able to do it. And there are going to be big problems uh, for commercial real estate, for you know apartments, for all kinds of other situations. After decades of free money, the day of reckoning is coming, as we're seeing with the financial meltdown across the board. There's $1.5 trillion of commercial real estate loans that are coming due in the next three years. And we lived through this in the early 1980s with the savings and loan crisis, right? And so if you create the time, the private sector can work it out. What would you say to him? I think I know the answer, but let me ask anyway. So that sounds awfully like the F word, which we used to hear in this business, forbearance. That's the F word I had in mind. Becky, I don't know where you think I was going. <laughs> it's not the F word I think of. So, so... Listen, I think that the crypto meltdown, the UK pension scandal, now what's thought to be just a few problematic institutions far and wide that have had deposit runs as if they're not connected. Uh, the episode of free money have had all these consequences without stricter terms, without a cost of capital. There was an economic boom, an everything bubble, and I'm afraid that credit is now contracting. The economy is continuing to slow. 
And almost nothing we're talking about on bank balance sheets shows a, is evidence of a deteriorating economy. I'm afraid that's to come. So you're going to hear more and more pleas for help. But uh, the private sector uh, has plenty to negotiate between banks and real estate developers and others to sort of work through this. The best the Fed can do is not be in the extensive bailout business, but try to be a steady hand here. And I'm afraid they're going to be racing from weekend to weekend for quite a while. Does that mean they should not be raising rates this week? So I think they find themselves in a terrible position. Price stability says they should be raising rates, and financial stability says they should be cutting rates. Uh, like Christine Lagarde, for whom I have a ton of respect, she tried to have it both ways in her last meeting. The Bank of England, when they had their crisis, tried to do both. But there's no separation principle between monetary policy, in monetary policy, between price stability and financial stability. This isn't an a la carte menu. But on balance, I think Jay Powell has said he really wants to beat inflation. Price stability is essential. My guess is he raises 25 basis points. And my guess is he follows the recommendations that many of us have put forward. He gets out of the business of forecasting. Um, if that's the big mistake he, he makes in this cycle, I'd be surprised. If, the big mistakes have already been made over the last several if years. If they raise by 25 basis points in what you, are, you say is already an unstable financial situation, what does that mean for additional pain in the immediate future? So I think most of the pain is already uh, finding its way into the system. I don't think 25 basis points is going to be the thing that cracks this thing. The harm is largely already, already done. And by the way, I said this, I've said this repeatedly, the Fed makes policy interest rates that we all focused on. The market sets almost every other rate behind the short-term rate, and the markets are saying, Yields will be cut dramatically. Rates will be cut dramatically by year end because I think they have figured out that the economy is weak. Is there a, still a huge overhang of banks that have, they call it money good because it's 10, 15 years, we know it's going to be at par, but we know where it is right now. Is there a huge overhang there of, of people sort of, you know, just not looking at, at, at the marks, at what's really happening, because it's been 10 years of zero. Right. Doesn't everybody have this on their balance? So it pains me to agree with you, Joe, but I have to. Um, so yes, uh, after 10 years where the Fed said, we're going to keep rates at zero and inflation is too low at 1.7% and we need to goose this thing, everybody has it. And nobody was looking under the hood at banks and all these other institutions as they went out longer in duration, except when the market gets scared and gets panicked, then we see these cracks, everything, it, everywhere, all at once. It pains and that's you what to agree with me because it's a bad uh, thing to, to, to consider or because you disagree with I, Because it's not something because you Because I don't want to encourage you, Joe. I don't want to encourage me to say things are bad, you mean? I don't know, because I don't know. You, you, you might start throwing things at me. No, I'm not going to throw. I just think that, I mean, SVB, they were crazy in, in terms of just thinking you can have stuff valued at par and never worry again. But we saw what happens when they need to come up with some money. I just don't want, if I don't want 90% of the banks to be like that. If right the now. banks can bring it all to the window, though, at par, does that paper over the situation, resolve it? Spread this out. That seems so like more bad loans. If, if you if you lend to them at par, like like with the, this new program, that's just and that's just making it worse. It, it shows how worried the Fed and the Treasury are that they opened up this facility at par without discounts. We didn't have the courage to do that ten years ago. 
I'll just leave you with one last thing, which is the situation at Silicon Valley Bank and these others. These are not one-offs. These are indicative and illustrative. And now markets are looking for the next one. I'm afraid what's happened faster this time than in the OE crisis okay. is we've run out of buyers before we right. run out of sellers. I wish you didn't agree with. You're right. I wish you wouldn't agree with that because that <laughs> sounds bad. Kevin, thank you very Thanks, much. Becky, for Thanks, Becky. Thanks for coming in. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, yet another score for sports company Fanatics. A branding partnership with the NHL is only part of the long game for CEO Michael Rubin. If we had live sports within our platform, is that going to help us to sell more merchandise, sell more online sports betting, sell more collectibles? And I think long term, that's why we say, very honestly, it does make sense. For now, sports are staying put, and NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman says that's just fine. We're on ESPN, and we're with Disney, and we love it, and the connection's great. As much as we love Fanatics and Michael, we like ESPN with Disney. Sports and streaming, right after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Stand by Joe, his mic, here. Good morning and welcome uh, to Squawk Box uh, here on CNBC live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Joe Kernan along with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Sports company a Fanatic scoring a new deal with the NHL. The merchandise giant will replace Adidas uh, as the league's uniform and jersey outfitter here now with more on the deal and all things sports. Michael Rubin, CEO of Fanatics, Gary Bettman, our friend, commissioner uh, of the National Hockey League. You, you already uh, built, you, you already were manufacturing a lot for, for the NHL. You just didn't have a, a, any, any uh, logo on the, on the uniforms. Yeah, we've been in business with NHL since 2005, nearly 20 years. We had an incredible partnership. And this was really the next leg for us to go from making all of the breakaway jerseys, which is really the fan jersey, to making the authentic jerseys. We're super excited about it. We make a lot of performance products today. And hockey's an incredibly strategic partnership for us and one that we're Really, uh, this is just to expand. another addition to the stable, isn't it? I mean, it, it, what, what do but you it's do? A really, but it's Major a really league baseball. But, but, you make all the uniforms. We we do make all the uniforms. The Nike branded uniforms you make too, don't we? You? Do but this is a really strategic uh, expansion for us. Hockey's a big business for us, and we're excited to have the Fanatics logo on the uniforms. It's incredible exposure for us. It's a way for us to continue to build the brand. So this is a big move for us. He he said it all. <laughs> We're excited. We've got a great partnership. Yeah. And, and frankly, when you're in business with Michael, he is just the force of nature. And we have had a partnership that's been very broad-based and encompassing e-commerce, retail, uh, performance, fan-friendly merchandise, uh, whole everything across the spectrum. This was the next logical step for us in being in business together. And we have complete confidence that they're going to do a great job. What's, what's better about it than the Adidas deal? It, it's different. Adidas, a good partner, but they're more focused on soccer and footwear. We're a little bit different. And Michael and Fanatics cover the broad spectrum of everything we're doing. And we've had together pretty dramatic double-digit growth over the last few years. So 
we love the partnership. Uh, we think Fanatics does a great job in everything they do. Michael's extremely progressive and forward-thinking. He's a visionary, and he can execute, and that's the most important thing in you want from your partner. In terms of marketing partner. to fans, in terms of making sure it's available in a lot of different places? He does it all, especially on things like special events, Stanley Cup final merchandise, when we do uh, our big events like the Winter Classic mm -hmm. and our other outdoor games. They do it all. Look, we wake up and go to bed thinking about how do we best service the fan. And when you have a company that, that's 100% of its business comes from taking care of the sports fan, we're going to do the best job. And that's really what we aspire to do every day. And, you know, I think we've made a lot of progress over the past 18 years, and we're just getting started at the same time. What was the temperature when we were together at that? You remember that last Winter Classic? Yeah, it was cold. It was like 10 below. You, was, you were like, shivering. Well, it was 10 <laughs> below when we were outside. We were outside, too, but it was a lot of fun. Um, so... I don't know what you guys discuss before you come on, but do either of you have any thoughts about regional sports and how this plays out? You, you, both, you, you, could, you could buy everything, probably, if well, you want. Is that ever something you... Well, first and foremost, we're 100% focused on the three businesses that we're in today. We have a you know, big and growing merchandise business, which we call Fanatics Commerce. We have our collectibles business, where we just started the trading cards business 15 months ago. We actually started taking our first bets in gaming just two weeks ago, which we have big aspirations for. So we have our hands full. We're very focused. I will give Gary credit. I came to him two years ago and asked about the RSNs, and he said, Michael, be patient. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot to unfold there's here. There's so much Don't value there, but it's anything. not. It, it, the, the costs are too high right now, but uh, it, these are essential things. They're not going to go away. It, it, it's almost the perfect storm. Uh, fans connect probably first and foremost on the regionals with their teams. The national packages all major sports have are vitally important, but the, particularly for baseball, basketball, and us, the tonnage that we have during the regular season, we're touching our fans through the regionals. And there are a combination of factors, uh, not the least of which is cord cutting and cord nevers, the evolution to streaming. I think that we're at a point in time where you're going to see the business continue to morph from linear to streaming digital. And over time, it'll, uh, the water will find its normal level. Because what's interesting is with all the cord cutting and the cord nevers, our viewership on the regionals hasn't gone down. It's basically been flat. So the business model needs to adjust. And I, I'm sure Michael's sitting there watching, waiting I'm telling, for the I'm right I'm looking at him knowing, and he's denying it, saying you got you well, love well, your three bit. You could get in. I want to ask you about Disney, too, yeah. uh, or you, ESPN. You think all the time, Michael. Yeah. You're not I, I, awake look, that you're not I, thinking I, about And you got a lot that, of money. That, that's, that's Don't you have a lot of cash? That's accurate. And we do have a good balance sheet. We have more than $2 billion on our balance sheet today. But I'll tell you, look, here's the reality. We have such incredible growth in the three business room. We don't want to rush into anything else today. Does media make sense for us long term? It does. Does that mean that we should rush into something in the next couple of years? Probably not. There's so much unfolding, say, in live sports, watching the digital streamers and how that's going to unfold and how it's going to perform, watching how the regionals and lo really local sports really you know, changes. These are incredibly valuable rights. We think they make a lot of sense for us long term, but we don't want to rush into anything. Right. We have so much to do. With so the Disney says right. they're, they, you know, they're going back to what they do best. Does that include ESPN in your view? Look, I, I don't want to speak on Disney's behalf. What I can tell you is... Um, You've spoken to Iger about ESPN, yes? That look, was look I, I, um, it's, it's, I have not spoken to Iger about ESPN. I've spoken to Iger several times, never about ESPN. Okay. Um, what, I, what I will tell you is we are not focused on live sports today. I think it does. And, I, I, look, I'm very transparent, as you guys know. I think it does fit long You're so term. skinny I can see right through you. Yeah. That, that's yeah. how transparent <laughs> you are. But, but I think 
One of the things I did wrong in my first company, GSI that we sold to eBay, was I did too many things too quickly and my execution wasn't good enough. Huh. And knowing that we have such a big opportunity in the three businesses that we're in, we want to do a great job. Do we look at everything? We looked at 500 companies last year. We bought three. Will we continue to look at everything? Absolutely. Will we continue to evaluate media? For me, like I kind of want to get like some popcorn, get on the couch, and just watch this unfold in media, and then we'll figure out what the right time is for us over time. So this is the well, this is the slow version we're, we're seeing of Michael Rubin. Listen, I mean, that's I'm getting scary. older There's now. No slow version of Michael, but but the fact is, he's he's in a place where he's touching sports fans in lots of different ways. Having said that, we're on ESPN and we're with Disney and we love it and the connection's great because if you think about last week, we did an animated game in real time with Big City Green on the Disney Channel and Disney Plus. And so from our standpoint, as much as we love Fanatics and Michael, we like ESPN with Disney. We think it works really well. And sports rights values only going up from here? Thank goodness, yes. Yeah. And by the way, we agree with that. Like, we look yeah. at that and we think that sports content is the most valuable content in the world. We think both local sports, national sports, sports rights in any way. I mean, it's incredibly valuable content. For us, what makes it exciting long term is that you can say, if we had live sports within our platform, is that going to help us to um, sell more merchandise, sell more online sports betting, sell more collectibles? And I think long term is why we say, very honestly, it does make sense. You know, having an ecosystem where you can give the digital sports fan anything they want in one place, we love that idea, but we don't want to get, rush into anything. Your decision to get out of some of the teams you own show, proves that you are business first, fan secondarily. You're only going to do what makes sense from yeah, a business look, perspective. Look, Fanatics is such an incredible opportunity. I've got the greatest you know, job in the world. I wake up and go to bed excited. No, I have the greatest job. We, together, we have the greatest jobs in the world. So, so we just got so much to do. I didn't want anything to get in the way of fanatic success. And team ownership was in the way of it because it just made it too complicated. Very good. Thank you, Michael Rubin. Thank you. Thanks. And that's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. So if you've gone this far and you're still here, would you do something for me? Apple Podcast listeners, please go right to your app and hit tap to rate Squawk Pod. Click right on those stars, even five of them. You can do it. If you have more thoughts, go ahead and write a brief review. Doing both of those things is the best way to help other listeners discover Squawk Pod. Okay, okay, that's it. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.